0: Facebook's strategy is shaped by long-term goals, short-term requirements, and the available resources of the company. Long-term goals are necessary for thinking through big decisions such as acquisitions, hardware product investments, and open-source software ecosystems. To implement long-term goals, Facebook needs to communicate the vision of the company and foster an internal culture that supports that vision. Short-term requirements can affect how the company is thinking on a more immediate time horizon. When Facebook realized the importance of mobile computing, the mentality in the company quickly shifted from looking at mobile as a tax on engineering resources to a long-term source of business value. When Google started to work on Google+, the Facebook engineers focused their resources on the potential competitive threat. Both of these are examples of shorter-term requirements. Facebook's strategy is implemented by the engineers, the product managers, and the other employees of the company. Facebook is unique in its ability to allow those employees to self-assemble into work that is meaningful to the individuals as well as to the company. As the long-term goals and short-term requirements of Facebook change over time, company resources are shifted to focus on the different sets of priorities that might emerge. Some of those priorities might be to invest in more speculative projects, and other of those priorities might be to double down on what is currently working. Mike Vernal worked as a VP of Product and Engineering at Facebook for eight years. He left the company in 2016 and joined Sequoia Capital, where he now works as a partner. In his time at Facebook, Mike helped architect and implement strategies relating to product direction and engineering. Mike joins the show for a discussion about his time at Facebook and the strategic lessons that he learned from this time. The Find Collabs Open has started. This is our second Find Collabs hackathon, and it features $2,500 in prizes. To enter, you just have to create a project on Find Collabs, and we have prizes for the best machine learning project, music project, visual art, React.js podcasting, cryptocurrencies, game design, we have lots of different prizes and I would love to see some cool projects being posted. Find Collabs is the company that I started and it is a place to build projects and find collaborators. You can check out our second hackathon by going to findcollabs.com open. With that said, let's get on to today's show. Mike Bernal, you are an investor at Sequoia. You're a former Facebook executive. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You were an executive overseeing the transition from desktop to mobile, and this was a strategic inflection point for Facebook. What did you learn from that experience?
1: Interesting question. There were. It's probably worth setting the context, and I feel like even today I'm still learning some of the lessons. So... I think this was probably most acute in 2011 so in 2011 we used to do a developer conference every year called f8 you know I think we had run in 2009 we had run in 2010 we had run in 2011 and I think it was slated for roughly sort of September 2011 and I think each time we had the conference the our sort of internal expectations for what we should launch and the amount of internal alignment we tried to create around the event increased. You know, In the early days, maybe a couple of teams would launch some things and we'd think about what we were going to launch three months beforehand. I feel like for the 2011 launch, we really ended up with a scenario where we were trying to launch all the things. If I remember back, we were shipping a new version of Profile, which we call Timeline. We were shipping a new version of Newsfeed. We were shipping this sort of giant extension of our platform called Open Graph and a handful of other things at the time. And because there were so many different things that we were trying to launch, and they were so interconnected, my sense is most, if I remember correctly, most of the company's effort, or a good chunk of the company's effort from early 2011 to really September 2011 was entirely focused on those products and the sort of the broader launches at F8. And all of those products were entirely desktop-centric. They probably had mobile equivalents, and it's probably unfair to say that they were an afterthought, but they were certainly not the primary focus. So we, we had F8. I remember it being maybe third or fourth week of September, so maybe like September 20th or 21st or something. And we launched, and then there were you know, a few days of people just getting some rest and kind of recovering and getting back into the swing of things. And it was really right around then that I think we sort of stuck up our heads and realized that in our like nine months of focus for F eight, we had been left completely flat-footed as to as to mobile. I think during that time we had treated mobile I think almost more as a tax than an opportunity. It was an incremental platform we had to support. So we had a bunch of great people that were working on it and they were, you know, they were doing good work, but I don't think, I'm not sure anyone inside the company would have characterized it as an opportunity. I think we would have characterized it as a tax. And actually that, I think that framing really also informed our technical strategy at the time. We lacked just really great iOS and Android engineers. I think finally, probably supply and demand is coming into balance in 2019. But for probably four or five years, there just weren't enough really great iOS and Android engineers. And we certainly felt that in 2011. And so a lot of our – because we had this mentality, I think, of mobile being a tax we tried to find ways to minimize that tax. And the the primary thing we looked at was HTML5. And we were like, can we somehow build these apps in HTML5 and kind of have a thin wrapper around, a thin wrapper, a native wrapper around iOS or Android to make that happen? And, you know, it was a good theory. And I think you could probably, you know, with things like React Native and Electron and the like today, you can actually get closer to that being possible in 2019, but in 2011, it was just way too early. And so we built a bunch of versions of the Facebook product in, I believe what was called FaceWeb internally, and they just weren't very good. I mean, the engineers were great, and we did our best work, but you just couldn't get to 60 frames a second, and you just couldn't get to the sort of the smooth, buttery feel of native iOS code. And so I think in the end of 2011 is when we had this big mental shift inside the company where we realized we've been distracted for nine months. We shipped a bunch of stuff that was entirely desktop centric. We've been treating mobile as a tax instead of an opportunity. We need to completely upend our philosophy and start thinking about mobile as the future as opposed to a tax and figure out what that means for the product, for the platform, for the business, etc.
0: So now you're at Sequoia. When you reflect on the fact that it took Facebook a little bit to comprehend the significance of mobile. Then again, it took a lot of people time to comprehend the significance. It took time for the consumer trends to develop. But do you have any reflections about the adoption cycles of technology and the fact that one of the most savvy tech companies, you know, at the time and still today, but took a while to see how big this trend was going to be. Do you have any reflections on the the adoption trends of technology?
1: Well, I think this is fundamentally the innovator's dilemma. I think when you are big and you have... When you're at scale and you see something that looks small, it's it's very hard to value it based on its future value as opposed to what it is today. I remember... Going back, before Facebook, I worked at Microsoft for around six years, and I remember at the time, I was in some meeting with Steve Ballmer, uh, who was the CEO at the time, and he he made some comment to the effect that if a business was not going to be a billion-dollar business for Microsoft, there was no reason for them to be playing in that space. And I get the spirit of the comment, and I get the spirit of it today, like you, you want, if you're building a product, if you're building a company, you want to go after a large enough market. But I think if you're inside Microsoft and you hear someone like Steve Ballmer say that, it's really hard to work on something that is maybe going to do $5 million in revenue the first year and $10 million in revenue the second year. By the way, those numbers would be fantastic if they were a startup, but within a company like Microsoft, that's sort of peanuts. And I think the desktop mobile dynamic inside of Facebook was fundamentally the same thing. The desktop numbers were so huge and the mobile numbers were actually, they were bigger than you might think, but it was easy to anchor on desktop really being the, the focal point of the business. And I think what you have to do, I think two things. One is you have to have a culture where you let people explore future things, even if they seem even if they don't seem that valuable, or even if they seem kind of tiny, and you have to find a way to shield them from the inertia and just politics. Politics sounds negative, but just the bureaucracy of a larger org. And you need to, when you realize that you've been sort of caught flat-footed, you have to course-correct with sort of all of your might. You can't, I think... The first mistake people make in the innovators dilemma is just not paying attention to things that are small. And then I think the second thing is they try to eat their cake and have it too, where they try to keep their current thing and then sort of dip their toes into the new thing. And I think you really have to sort of burn the boats and move over to the other thing with all of your might and sort of make that bet. I think... It's, you know, it's it's kind of entered the realm of m- mythology as opposed to fact at this point. But I think one of the things that Mark would say at the time was if a, you know, like after he made this mental shift around desktop and mobile, if a team came in with desktop mocks for their product, he would end the meeting and say, come back when you have mobile mocks. And that sort of changed behavior pretty quickly. I do think I came in a few times with desktop mops, mocks and he didn't end the meeting, but the spirit of it was true. And it was clear like sometime around October, October 2011 that everyone should just be focused on mobile.
0: Were there any other moments in your time at Facebook where it felt like there was an existential threat to the health of the company?
1: I think in the early days, maybe up through the IPO and a year after they were almost quarterly occurrences. (laughs) I think there is a I'm trying to think of good examples, but I think there was a constant sense in the early days that not that we were under attack, but that there were constantly ups and downs. I, I think one example which has been written about was obviously the the fact that Google was working on Google Plus and At the time, before it launched, we knew knew Google was working on it. We knew Google was devoting a lot of resources to it. And obviously, Google had a lot of distribution at the time. They had Google.com, they had Chrome, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there was, you know, that was probably the most discreet competitive threat in sort of like the mid the adolescence of the company. I think in the very early days, in the first few years, there was obviously MySpace, and then around the world, there were things like VKontakte and StudioVZ uh, in Germany. But I think sometime around 2008, 2009, Facebook started to emerge as the clear leader. And I think when Google Plus came along as one example, or rather before it came along, there was a fear that this, is, this was something that might really sort of upset the balance, and I think was a rallying point for the company.
0: We had a show a while ago with a Google engineer who had worked on Google+, and I asked him for some perspective on his time working on that. One thing that surprised me was, in contrast to the narratives you often hear around Google+, Plus, like this thing is a complete mistake, uh, total dead end for the company, total distraction, total hyper-competitive focus, his memory and his position was that This was absolutely a worthwhile endeavor. Google was worried about these areas of the Internet that would be difficult to index. They felt this was a walled garden environment. It was potentially a threat to the Internet ideology that Google had dominance over. So when you put yourself in Google's shoes at the time, thinking strategically— Do you think it was a smart decision to to put all the wood behind that arrow? I mean, that was like kind of Google's own innovator's dilemma moment, right?
1: It's a very good question. I haven't thought about it before. You know, I would say I could argue both sides pretty easily. I think the Amazon Jeff Bezos view would be you should be customer obsessed, not competitor focused. And I don't and this is not to diminish any of the work. That the Google Plus team did. But I think it would be fair to say that the effort was competitively focused as opposed to consumer obsessed. And so that I think would be the obvious strike against it. On the flip side, I think it's, you know, Google had been this incredibly fast growing company that was really the sort of the darling of the tech ecosystem. And I think Facebook was maybe six years behind it, but growing at a similar clip and with a similar, I think, amount of potential. And so it was a reasonable, I think, strategic decision to make. It it was a reasonable thing to try. And I think executed differently, it might have been more aggressive, it might have had more impact. But you know, one of the, I'm sure you read Ben Thompson every so often, but I think he has some comment, I can't, Remember exactly what it is, but it's around culture and how it's really hard to be. It's really hard to be excellent at two different types of product with the same culture, and I think it would would have been hard for Google to be excellent at social while also being excellent at search.
0: So I don't want we don't need to take this discussion too far, but like if you were in charge of that Google Plus project that or Google's social efforts at the time, and you took that more tempered approach, you're like. Okay, the competitive strategy here is to flank, right? It's some kind of indirect. I mean, you could even say Google's done that today. Google feels like a social experience now, but it's it's much more subtle. You know, you know that Google is taking into account some sort of social graph when it returns your search results. Do you have any sense for how you would have architected that strategy if you, if you were in Google's shoes at the time when you see this threat of Facebook? Do you do some kind of top-down effort? Or do you just sort of like massage into your various keynotes and conversations that are like, yeah, there's this Facebook thing and we should probably think more socially or something like that?
1: Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, so it's a little bit unfair. And it's I...
0: counterfactual.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, the, the most obvious thing is... Google owns the most popular operating system in the world by a factor of four or five. And again, not to diminish Google at all, but it would be hard for me to today articulate what their messaging strategy is. I think there's Hangouts. I think there's like Allo. I think there's Duo. I think there's an assistant you can talk to in a separate app, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different messaging apps. I feel like Apple I mean Apple has a very coherent messaging strategy around iMessage. It's iOS only, I think to make the iOS ecosystem sort of work better together. So I, I get their strategy. It's not a cross-platform strategy, but I think iMessage is the dominant messaging platform in the US for, for iOS. I, with the benefit of hindsight, I would have just gone very hard after messaging and gone very hard after mobile. In some senses, I think Google made the same mistake that Facebook did around this time, which is they fought, like, today's war instead of tomorrow's war. So that's the most obvious thing. And and I think the, like, there's still, even if Google Plus in its first incarnation hadn't worked, had Google just built a great, a singular messaging app on Android And had it really been the dominant messaging platform on Android and then also had that be cross-platform, that could have been a very, very powerful social strategy. Obviously, WhatsApp, which Facebook ended up acquiring. I don't know how many users they have, a billion-plus users. Look at WeChat in China. Messaging is clearly was the future of social in many ways. And I think it should have, like, there is a strong argument that Google should have been the best position to do messaging, given the dominance of Android.
0: You were the co-creator, or you worked heavily on the product for Facebook Login. What were the most difficult engineering problems around building Facebook Login?
1: I was thinking about this question, because I was thinking about what you'd ask me on the drive, the drive here today. And this one, I think, is a little bit of a funny story. So... My very first job out of college was was at Microsoft. And at Microsoft, I was working on the XML Web Services Group. So I actually sat on the SOAP standards body and I, I thought about this thing that hopefully no one on the podcast remembers called the WS Star Protocols. And it's kind of like CORBA but worse. And the interesting thing about the that group, the XML Web Services Group at Microsoft, is it was kind of the a little bit the descendant of an earlier project at Microsoft called Hailstorm, which, again, people probably won't remember, but Hailstorm was this this kind of very broad Microsoft passport identity layer for the internet does everything strategy in maybe 2000, 2001. And it was before I had joined Microsoft, but it had been this sort of sprawling project with a lot of people working on it and a lot of noise and energy. And like I said, the the team that I joined, which was kind of post-Hailstorm, was still a couple hundred people working on all these different web services. And one of the lessons I mislearned when I first joined Microsoft was the way you got things done was you allocated 200 people to a project and told them to go and start doing some stuff. And so it was a very... When I showed up at Facebook... One, Facebook was a very small company. It was probably 70 or 80 engineers at the time. And I had joined Facebook to work on platform because I had spent my entire career working on developer platforms. And the first F8, which was in 2007, was really the thing that got me really excited about the company. And so I joined to work on developer platforms. And the team at the time was maybe eight or nine people. And at the time, there was this interesting narrative and this all... This all ties, interestingly, back to the desktop mobile question you asked at the beginning. But at the time, there was this narrative that Facebook was trying to sort of reappropriate the web and have the web live within Facebook.com. And people analogized it to sort of AOL and AOL keywords back in the day. And so, you know, people would talk about, oh, the U- you know, UPS is wondering whether they should kill UPS.com and just have a Facebook app. And, you know, New York Times is asking the same question. And then people from the outside would look at this and say, look at Facebook's evil master strategy, which is to kill the web and reappropriate it inside of Facebook.com. And I could certainly understand if you were at Google at the time and your entire business was predicated upon the quote unquote open web, that more things moving within Facebook seems not just strategically bad, but in some senses like morally bad because you know openness is good. And so I sort of walked in and I was chatting with some folks in my first couple of weeks. And the sentiment I got was, this isn't some kind of evil master plan to get the entire web to come within Facebook. We just, when we designed the first version of Facebook platform, our mental model was kind of Facebook as the operating system. It had some APIs. There are apps that are running within Facebook. In the very first version of Facebook platform, Facebook had tried to redesign A lot of the functionality, like events and groups, and even messaging, as kind of apps that ran on top of the Facebook OS. And so their perspective was, it's our mental model is just Facebook is the OS and these are some apps. And so we didn't really think about how you would use this on other sites, but there's no philosophical opposition to that. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'm, and does anyone like object if I go like figure out this Facebook login thing? And people were kind of like, hmm, like, Sure, go for it, shrug. And so there were three of us, I think, me, this guy named Wei Zhu, who had actually I'd been on my team at Microsoft as well and had joined Facebook a few months before I had, and James Lazinski. And so we just started working on it. And I don't want to quite say we hacked it together, because that's a, like, a little bit dismissive, but the A lot of the plumbing already existed there there existed this notion of sort of API keys and session keys and apis and the like and so a lot of a lot of what we had to figure out was just how do we like how do we securely get these session keys to JavaScript on third party sites and At the time it was super it was super messy i don't know if it's gotten any better because it's been a while since I did this, but at the time, the way you had to do this was with hidden iframes and you had to do message passing through these three layers of iframes. And so we had built this kind of message passing protocol on top of, I think the way it worked, it's, it's been a while, is you could change the URI fragment and both sides, it was very ingenious or hacky depending on your disposition. Very which Facebooky. Is, yeah, well, so it's. I think the way it works is both the parent, you know, a parent knows what the URI of its iframe is, but nothing else. And then the iframe itself knows what its URI is, but nothing else but then the iframe can also open another iframe inside it and it knows the uri but nothing else and so if the parent opens up a an iframe to your website and then that website opens up an iframe back to the parent you actually get this kind of communication protocol and the only thing you can change is the fragment because if you change any other part of the uri it causes a reload And so you'd end up with this. (laughs) The parent would pass a message in the fragment down. This would pass it down. It was incredibly hacky, but it worked. And so that was actually the... Like, the JavaScript message passing stuff was the vast majority of the complexity. And then once we had that working, we... The second hardest thing was actually just designing the UI so that it was pretty clear to users what was going on. But we basically had it working within maybe four or so months. And to me it was always it was just a fascinating story because again Microsoft had 200 people working on this thing for 2 years and it never really like exited the quote unquote spec phase and we kind of got the entire system working in a few months and launched it i think announced it in May and launched it in July and I joined in January and so it was it was a pretty fast turnaround and because we had Again, because we had been entirely focused on just getting it to work as opposed to anything else, you know, people were concerned that we weren't using OAuth or OAuth 2. I can't remember which one at the time. And so there was this this other engineer named Luke Shepard who came along who cared a lot about OAuth. And so he kind of retrofitted the system to be OAuth compliant. And we kind of went from there. So with the retrospect of time, what is it about
0: the cultural differences between Facebook and Microsoft or perhaps Facebook and the broader cultures of companies that allowed you to ship that thing in four months when it was stagnating in Microsoft?
1: I mean, I think there are a lot of things. First, and this is a lesson I've painfully learned because I've made this mistake a number of times, especially later in my career at Facebook, strategy is important but you can't be you have to find a way to balance strategy with both kind of simplicity and customer focus. I think a lot of the mistakes Microsoft made at the time were strategizing around what was in sort of Microsoft's self-interest and what are the things that could be built but without a really like sort of thinking up a technology and thinking up its use cases as opposed to going to people today and understanding their pain points and making them better. And then two, just getting, you know, innovators dilemma applies to more than just the, the sort of the philosophy behind it, I think applies to more than just products and markets. It also applies to teams. I think it's easy at a place at a large company. And I, I think as any company gets large, it probably falls victim to this where it's like, if you could, why throw three people at a problem when you can throw 50 or 100? It's like the line from Contact, which is like, why buy one when you can buy two for twice the cost? And so you just, and it takes, I think, a really high level of maturity in the leadership of a project to say, I don't want any more people. Stop trying to send me people. I'm just going to use, like, I'm just going to take these 10 people and go build something. And incentives in companies are usually around, like, on some level competing for resources, because resources are usually scarce. And so there's usually some kind of headcount planning process. And it would be weird in a headcount planning process for you to say like, you know what, actually, I have 10 people right now, I only really need eight, like you can take two more, I just want to focus with these eight, because you feel like you're signaling to everyone else that your project isn't important or something. And so you just end up with these dynamics as companies grow, where you think, if you have an important problem, you have to throw a lot of people at it. And that obviously doesn't work. You end up with just complexity. You end up with 200 people not quite knowing what to do, but trying to do busy work, etc. And so I think having three people that just kind of go make it work, and by most measures, the thing that we launched, I think you could criticize on every single dimension. Like, there were probably technically a bunch of problems with it. Maybe the UI was not as great as it could have been. It certainly wasn't standards compliant.
0: You were a vice president... At Facebook, vice president of I think product and engineering around this time, but you were in charge of I think the department was called Utility, and so it was this was you know obviously an esteemed role in the organization, but Newsfeed was not in your domain, and Newsfeed was driving a lot of the product, the the, the direction of the product, at least as I understand from my. Other conversations with people. I think a a quote was, so the feed goes, Facebook goes. So were there any frictions in getting products out the door because feed was not directly in your dominion?
1: It's a good question. I would say there was healthy friction in terms of people wanting to do what was right for their individual products. But I I think the broader question is very interesting. I, I don't know if you read over the weekend, this very, very long blog post by Eugene Way yeah, yeah, called I, Status as Service. I, I, you skimmed it?
0: More than skimmed. You know, concerted. Scout would, like, yeah. you know, read for five hey, minutes. Hey, hey, it right. was a commitment. Skim down, read for five minutes. Like,
1: wow. Yeah, it was a commitment. I think someone I work with referred to it as a Russian novel. <laughs> but it was interesting because he talks about these dimensions of, I think, like engagement and status and utility and something like that. And it was interesting to see yeah. someone else use that term to think about it. You know, I think the high level, the going in thesis was that we could make Facebook both more engaging and more useful. And so there actually, there there were two orgs that primarily worked on the core Blue app. One was called Engagement and one was called Utility. And, you know, I think the going in thesis, it was like an interesting hypothesis. I think what we learned is like engagement, it's hard for one app to do both. And I think engagement just ends up trumping utility, especially since the core economic engine of Facebook was so deeply tied to Newsfeed, which was the driver of engagement within the app. You'd end up, I think we ended up in this dynamic where engagement was always as the focus and kind of the center. And the sort of the utilitarian aspects of Facebook ended up being more on the periphery. But to that point, I don't think, I don't think there was friction per se. I think the, the dynamic that happened most was people would build a new product and they would, they would want to grow the product because that's, that's what people want to do. And, you know, they would see newsfeed as this just incredible distribution channel and so they would construct feed stories that would show up in feed like an example might be an app like events or functionality like events and you might want to have like you might want to have a story in newsfeed when someone joins an event when someone says they're going to an event you know blah 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 and so it would be very natural for the events team to say hey I have like here's my events product I want to grow it it's valuable like it's Getting people together in the real world, people like it. I want to grow it. The best growth channel is actually in newsfeed, and so we should find, figure out a way to sort of generate more stories in feed. And then the feed team would say, "That's fine, but like we we want to run as sort of balanced and efficient an auction as possible for the content that shows up in newsfeed. We want to show content that people." like and that want to engage with. And so we're not going to sort of artificially boost your content. We'll put your content into the auction like we put other content, but we're not going to sort of help it out in the early days to help you grow to achieve some critical mass. That was probably the core tension around people wanting maybe like artificial boosts in the early days to sort of help kickstart some product. And the feed team, to its credit, I think holding a pretty hard line and saying like, no, we're going to... Like, we want to have a neutral, balanced field. We want to show people the content that people like. And we're not going to, we're sort of not going to artificially change distribution.
0: What was the biggest mistake you made as a manager at Facebook?
1: What I would say is this there were a handful of times where I sort of would end up with a hodgepodge of sort of different teams that were working on things. And my, I think at the time my approach was how do I fit these things together in a coherent way? And it was a little bit like I've got a bunch of ingredients on the table. Let's like figure out what soup I can make from them as opposed to like forget the ingredients on the table. What is the, like who is the customer? What is their problem? And like what problem are we trying to solve? And like there's one of these 10 ingredients that matter and then the other nine ingredients don't make any sense. And so I, I think I... I spend a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, there's these 10 puzzle pieces, what is the right way for them to go together? And I should have just said, actually, like, let's, one, let's, like, ditch these, like, seven or eight of these things are good in the abstract, and I'm glad that they exist. They don't have coherence with everything else. And so let's, like, find another home for them or just figure out something else, because you end up sort of playing the game with the pieces you have instead of sort of intentionally designing, like thinking from first principles, like what game you should be playing.
0: Now, that's so that basically boils down to an issue of focus, which is something that I hear a lot of people struggle with, both at small companies and large companies. But to what you said earlier, you want to be able to have the departments of tinkering, right? You want to be able to have, departments tinkering i don't know with various degrees of dedication on cryptocurrency or augmented reality you know these, these far flung things are you talking about those kinds of departments or is it, what kinds of departments are you talking about that you should throw out
1: no and i'm not saying that the i'm not saying that the i guess, I'm not what, saying what's the
0: what's the characteristic of the puzzle pieces that were burdening you
1: it's a very good question how do I, how would i describe it i would say so, the initial vision went unfulfilled, but I still think is interesting there there's a There's an alternate universe where we had where we would have pulled it off and we would have seen and maybe Facebook would look and feel different I think the from a technical perspective, there was always a there was always an obsession with the graph at Facebook and a sense that the world could like really interestingly be modeled as a graph or really as two concepts, a graph and a feed where and I think the way these two things relate is the graph is a set of nodes and then relationships between those nodes. And then the feed is really like a database replication log is kind of a reverse chronological view of all of the changes that are happening in the graph. And that I actually think is a pretty interesting and beautiful concept. And so I would say in the early days, there was this vision that there were a few things. One is, could we model our internal applications in this graph structure in a better way? Two, could we sort of expose those applications to third parties so that they could integrate them with their apps, which is why the Facebook API is called the Graph API. And then third was this notion of open graph, which is the thing that we launched in 2011, which was, can we also help third parties sort of model their data in this graph-oriented way and then help them integrate their data set with the Facebook data set with the sort of obvious benefit that as as there were these kind of state changes in maybe third-party apps, that those state changes would also sort of be eligible for showing up in newsfeed and potentially search and other things. And so you can imagine, you know, one of our launch parties way back in the day was Spotify. I think when Spotify launched in the U.S. was was with Facebook login and, and was back in 2011. And, you know, our mental model was, look, there's artists and there are albums and there are songs and... There are listening to, you know, those are kind of the nodes. And then there are edges like liking a song or listening to a song, et cetera. So let's figure out how we can model all these things together and then integrate them into Facebook. And, you know, we had visions of being able to do things like aggregate, just understand, like, which songs are your friends listening to the most this week, this month, etc. And a sense that you could do this. At the kind of abstract platform level, like you could understand the most number of edges from your friends to some particular node in some time window. And really, like, if that is your abstraction, what is the difference between the most listened to song on Spotify or the most watched thing on Netflix or the most committed to repo on GitHub? You know, they're all kind of the exact same thing. And so that was the starting premise of a lot of this. And then once you have these graphs, again, the very first version of the like majorly rebuilt search engine that we launched was called graph search and the idea again was graph search actually let you sort of traverse this graph in in its sort of graph structure you could use natural language which didn't work as well as it could have but i think could have gotten better in terms of like show me all of my friends who listen to some song, and then show me, you know, you, you could construct these graph queries in natural language, and they would actually map down to actual graph queries. So that, that was kind of the starting premise. And I think there were a couple of mistakes. One is, back to the Microsoft mistake, I think it was just too large a coordination problem. It would have been better to get the system to work really well for one use case and then move to adjacent use cases and move to adjacent use cases. And we, we just tried to do too much at a platform level and then educate people too quickly. And, and it just didn't work. And then two, we ended up with some sort of strategic drift where if you take like the search team, for instance... About a year into Graph Search, the the search team decided that actually Graph Search was the wrong metaphor, and that we should just do keyword search like Google, and you should just be able to type in you know a couple of words and find a post. In retrospect, I think that was a mistake because it, it was a. It's complicated to answer. It, it's kind of like your Google Plus question earlier, <laughs> because on the one hand, I do think that's what customers. Like, would say that they want. Like, what they, what, it was really an effort to make search work more like Twitter search, which is you can type in a couple of things and you can find the tweet you're looking for. Like, how can we make Facebook work well for that use case? But I think the differentiated thing would have been to, like, make graph search easy enough to use that you could actually write these queries over the graph and, like, ask interesting questions of the system. I think it's a little unfortunate in retrospect that. We didn't sort of fully fully explore that. But that is overall a way of saying as we started to have this drift, as graph search ended up not graph search but search. And as other things became less less focused on sort of modeling out this graph and modeling out the sort of the open graph of how all these things connected together, they became less this coherent story of like modeling the graph and then searching over it and it more became a set of disparate parts and it's hard to have perspective on something when you're in the middle of it but I think at some point I should have realized these things weren't deeply connected together anymore they had kind of drifted apart and then it became well if it's not all connected by the graph what are they connected by and I think the core mistake I should have realized is like the The premise of this is has changed, and we should recalibrate and reorient based on that. Wow. One of the
0: motivations for doing this interview series was the fact that the engineering practices of Google are well-documented. People have talked about them a lot. And in contrast, you know, Facebook's engineering practices, what makes Facebook engineering unique in a very good way Is less well documented. And there are a lot of lessons to learn, especially given that when Facebook was coming up, the obvious model organism to look at would be Google. Like, let's copy everything that Google does, engineering wise, uh, hiring wise, onboarding wise. And Facebook did not do that. And I think, from what I've heard from some people, some of that is because Facebook is this super rich, highly interactive php application it's the it's kind of the first social application but other other people have said it's, it comes down more to kind of an ideological thing maybe not necessarily driven by the php ramifications how do facebook and google engineering organizations compare to one another
1: well i never worked at google so it's hard for me to comment in depth i will say i was thinking about this too an interesting anecdote about Facebook culture is that I think many of the very best engineers in Facebook's history were also the cause of catastrophic engineering failures. And I, I won't call it, you know, I won't call people out by name, but a bunch of the worst bugs in Facebook history that, you know, would take the site down for two or three hours or cause like pandemonium, were caused by, you know, some of the prior guests on the show <laughs> and just like, just really, really great engineers. And I think the reason for that was this, not fearlessness, but I think it's really, you know, again, going back to the Microsoft experience, I remember there was this element of lore within Microsoft, and I, I don't know if it's still true, but I was told that, you know, so much of Excel was written in hand-tuned assembly, and there was something like 91 global variables in Excel that were protected by one spin lock that, like, no one just, no one could unravel the hairball. Like, Excel is basically, like, you you can add a, you can change the navigation, and you can add a bunch of bells and whistles, but, like, the, at some effort, there was an effort to change the number of rows from, like, Oh, no, the number of columns from 128 to 256, and I think they just made, like, assigned and unsigned. And that, that was, like, I think you're still limited to 256 columns in Excel because of the morass at the, like, the very center of it. And so I think it's easy for systems, especially systems that are scaling quickly and evolving quickly, to just become inscrutable and have people not be willing to, like, roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty, and actually just go in and try to fix it. And I think one of the core, and, you know, the whole move fast and break things gets gets maligned all the time now because it's subtle and people don't like subtlety. But I think a lot of the basis of that fundamentally came from the the engineering team. It was not a, like, a product thing or a company-wide thing. To me, it was fundamentally a sort of a technical mantra. And... The intent behind it was, look, it is better to dive in and try to fix something and make it better, and like maybe you make some mistakes along the way, than it is to be just incredibly cautious and never get anything done, right? And so, one of the things I thought was impressive, especially at the early days of Facebook, in the early days of Facebook, was just the the constant evolution of the underlying product infrastructure and the... I think some of the very best engineers in the company and the group that GraphQL and React and a lot of those things came out of was this group called Product Infrastructure. And, you know, they were constantly rethinking the core frameworks inside of the company and then just touching all the code to sort of update the code to abide by these new frameworks. And that's, like, in most companies, I think there is either just fear, like no people are too scared to go do that. So you end up with 91 global variables protected by a spin lock or there's so much, it's so glacial the pace because you're so careful about the changes that people just get dissuaded from ever doing this because why work on some new abstraction if it's going to take five years for it to sort of roll out throughout the code base. And so You know, there there are a bunch of pros and cons to, quote unquote, move fast and break things. But I do think the tempo within the engineering org and the willingness to accept a few mistakes in the interest of like making the code base better, faster, stronger, faster was really definitional.
0: You're now an investor at Sequoia. How do the strategic decisions that you make in your day-to-day life differ from those you made at Facebook?
1: Many people ask me how investing is different than operating. And the surprising thing is it's actually far more similar than it is dissimilar. I, I think if you're an exec in a company, especially an exec that is kind of managing multiple different things... The kind of from a day-to-day perspective and from a sort of year-to-year perspective, what are you doing? I think you're you're making sure you have the right leaders for a bunch of different areas. You're working with them to make sure you have the right strategy. You're working with them to help them hire and build out their team. And you're working with them on resource allocation. Like you're working with them to help figure out how their team should scale and where those heads should come from, et cetera. And in many ways, the work a board member and an investor is very similar. You're working, you're working with teams to help them think about their strategy, to think about their hiring plan, to help them actually hire and close people to help them get financed and then help them get financed again in the future, et cetera, et cetera. So my my day-to-day relationship with many of the companies I work with feels very similar to the the dynamic I had with people I worked with at Facebook. And in fact, a number of the teams that I work with are ex-Facebook teams that I knew at Facebook. I think probably the core difference is generally in an operating role, the things you work on emerge organically from your org. You know, they're things, they're like little seeds that you place and then they grow and then they hopefully become big things or they're acquisitions that that come into your org. Whereas in the investor world, you know, I meet probably around a thousand companies a year and of that we'll partner with one or two. And so one, you have to you unfortunately have to say no to a lot of people, which is never a fun thing because there's lots of like amazing entrepreneurs that we meet and lots of amazing ideas, but we only have capacity to work with one or two companies a year. But then once you say yes, and hopefully both sides say yes, then it, it's actually surprisingly similar.
0: What are the potential synergies between the social media ecosystem and the cryptocurrency ecosystem?
1: Well, I think it's uh, a good question. The thing, I haven't thought about it that deeply the thing that seems to be happening across a number of messaging networks is just the the introduction of some kind of coin to enable either peer-to-peer transactions or probably transactions between consumers and businesses. And that seems, that's probably not an acute pain point in the U.S. because the dollar is pretty stable and the U.S. is pretty big and Transacting between peers is not that hard. The Square Cash app is great; it's really big. There's Venmo, even you know Facebook Messenger has that integration. I think it's probably much more acute in company in countries rather that have less stable currencies. Uh, Venezuela being an obvious example, countries where the payment is much more cash based for a variety of reasons. So just digital payments are less mature, or countries where you have a much Higher rate of cross-border transactions, and so you know, there's this product in Africa called M-Pesa, and I, I think for 10 years people have been looking at that and saying, "Wow, that's a really fascinating case study." How do we, like, how do we offer something like M-Pesa for the rest of the world? And in some senses, I think the crypto messaging stuff is probably yet another attempt at cracking that nut.
0: Are there particular engineering problems that you saw people struggling with and either trying to solve or successfully solving within Facebook that you are surprised have not gotten turned into companies yet?
1: So many. I mean, I think one of my theses is that companies like Facebook and Google and, and probably Uber at this point live five to 10 years in the future in that they've just built out the software stack that everyone needs, the rest of the world would be- would benefit from, but will just take five or ten years to be commercially available. And so I'd say a lot of, you know, an obvious example of this is Confluent, which is an exceptional company that's growing very quickly. Kafka was first developed at LinkedIn, and then the team left to start Confluent. Facebook had a sort of similar message bus inside Facebook. I'm sure Google has one as well. So point number one, I think, is that Facebook and Google just live in the future and that technology is applicable to a really wide range of people. Point number two is, especially as companies mature, they get very, like like Facebook and Google, they get large and people just leave and they start companies or they join other companies and when they they land in their new companies, they just miss the infrastructure that they had in their old company. And so... I think that dynamic also creates this sort of pre-existing market pull for the system. Like people are looking for this thing that they had at Facebook and don't have anymore. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And certainly if anyone is bouncing out of Google or Uber or Facebook to build a company around one of the shiny toys that only they have internally, I'd love to talk to them.
0: Mike Vernal, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Wow.